Welcome back to the second season of Sax Reel. This season is brought to you in part by Key Leaves. Are you suffering from sticky sax keys or striving to keep your instrument healthy? Check out Key Leaves and use the code SAXREEL for a special discount at keyleaves.com. That's key like a saxophone key and leaves like leaves keys open to dry. Key Leaves. Welcome back to another episode. This week, I'm very excited to have someone who has a lot of schools in common with me when it comes to education. He is the professor of saxophone at Tennessee Tech University, and he's a member of the award-winning Assembly Quartet. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Matthew Younglove. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here. So I always like to start with a little bit of an introduction of how you got into the saxophone and maybe how you got to where you are. Sure. So I started, as many do, in sixth grade. I grew up in South Carolina. Uh, I'm not originally from the South. I was born in upstate New York. But when I was uh, about, you know, second, third grade, my parents relocated down to the Charlotte area. We settled on the south side of the border in Fort Mill, South Carolina, which is a school that has uh, a big marching band program, big band program. And I was fortunate to be a beneficiary of a great musical training and a great musical program. So I started in sixth grade just playing saxophone. I picked the instrument as my third choice on my list. My dad played the drums, so I wanted to be a drummer, of course. But drums was my second choice. I had a friend who wanted to play trumpet. We were going to be buddies and play trumpet together. Of course, that's, you know, your sixth grade mind thinking the way that it does. You know, you want to do things for social reasons. But I could not make a trumpet buzz, so I bombed the trumpet mouthpiece placement. Um, that was not meant for me. And then uh, the next one was the drums and percussion. I did fine with that, but the saxophone mouthpiece placement was what worked out best. And out of the ones that I picked and the way that that I tested, I was assigned the saxophone, which was what my mom wanted to have happen, actually. She uh, had a colleague at work who sold me um, my first saxophone for $200. Very old con and terrible shape, but it got me through sixth and seventh grade. And that's kind of how it started. But I was not good. I was last chair in sixth grade. Um, and there was a, a, another person there that had been studying privately since fifth grade who just was light years ahead of us uh, in the sixth grade. You know, she had a good foundation. She was first chair. And, uh, you know, I, I always looked up to, the, you know, this particular person and thought highly of their playing. But I just I wasn't motivated in sixth grade. I wanted to play football in middle school and, and do the football thing. So it, it didn't wasn't until seventh grade when I started taking private lessons that I kind of went that direction. And that became Became, you know the direction of my life it's interesting that you mentioned you were really into football i feel like most musicians aren't super into tactile sports what kind of changed your direction to get into more music there's a couple couple things but there's one really funny story when i was in football in seventh and eighth grade i was on the offensive line and of course everyone wants to be a wide receiver right like that's that's the thing but i wasn't fast and uh I, that my coach put me on the offensive line, but I found my home as an offensive guardsman. So on, on the line, um, whenever you practice, you always practice against the defense. So I was usually working against defensive linemen, and there was a guy named Vance Walker. Vance is a star in our hometown because uh, after middle school, he went on to uh, high school and played at a high level and then got uh, a scholarship to play at Georgia Tech got drafted in the NFL, made it to a few different teams, um, and eventually he, he was a Super Bowl champion with the Denver Broncos. So the, the story here that makes it interesting is Vance used to just lay me flat on my butt. And <laughs> I figured out real quick that, you know, if, if in middle school I'm not very good at this, maybe I should go a different direction. I think some part of me maybe helped inspire Vance to his greatness. You know, I can't take really any credit. I'm, I'm more so joking than anything. But um, <laughs> it's funny how 
different phases in life can push you in different directions. And, and Vance having a lot of success on the middle school football field led him to his path. And uh, me not having that success made me reevaluate and think, I'm going to do the band thing in high school instead of the instead of the football thing. And I think that was the right choice. <laughs> I don't think football <laughs> had a bright future for me. Um, but music and saxophone clearly did. So I joined the marching band and took private lessons. And, and that's really the direction that went. And I know that you studied with Dr. Lehman in high school, too. Did you have any fun stories about your interactions with him and taking lessons with him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very grateful and lucky to have the opportunity to work with him. Um, he was in Columbia, South Carolina, so it was an hour and a half drive. And so we had marching band rehearsal Monday and Tuesday and Thursday, football games on Friday and competitions on Saturday. So Wednesday was the only day that I had to take lessons. Um, and that's what I did. I usually had, I would get in the car right after school with my dad before I could drive. We'd drive our hour and a half down there. I'd have like either a five or a 5.30 lesson, have that hour lesson and get in the car and drive back. And usually I'd do my homework in the car while my dad drove. And I'm really grateful for my parents for giving that opportunity to me uh, just because of how inspiring he was. A lot of my success today was due to his instruction and his inspiration um, because having a chance to work with an artist like that from an early age really set some good precedent for me and, and allowed a good foundation and good skill sets um, due to what I just did what he told me to do. <laughs> um, which is an important characteristic as well, you know, for future students, do what your teachers say and you can do a lot, you can accomplish a lot. Um, I think one of my favorite stories uh, was I was in high school and Dr. Lehman used to do these tours around the, the state of South Carolina and I'm sure other states. But he would come through Fort Mill and he would work with the saxophone sections and he would do private lessons. Uh, and while I was one of his private students, it made the most sense. He's in town instead of me driving down there this week. Let's just have my lesson while he's here. Well, he happened to be there during the school day. Um, so I asked him if he would give me a quote doctor's note so I could get an excused absence. And I don't think it made him very comfortable. But what he did is he was like, he said he wouldn't write anything illegal. So he wrote, dear whomever, to whomever it may concern, please excuse Matt from classes. Uh, he had an appointment with me and signed it Dr. Layman. <laughs> I handed that thing right to my guidance counselor, the attendance clerk or whatever. And 100% approved. I got to miss half <laughs> school for a saxophone lesson, which is pretty much the coolest excuse to miss, uh, miss school ever. Um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. I also got to that same timeline. I was doing the MTNA competitions and I got to study. Uh, I got to interact with Hannah Gruber, now Hannah Creviston. I was very early on getting to play with great pianists. And that's something you cannot take for granted is the opportunity mm. to play great standard repertoire with amazing pianists. And anyone who knows or has listened to or has had the chance to work with Hannah Creviston would probably agree um, that that is you're a fortunate individual if you get to uh, collaborate with a musician like that. So after you were in South Carolina for an extended period of time, I know you went to your undergrad there as well. Um, you ended up studying with Hemke and Dr. Sampin. And I know that both of them are quite the character. They have a lot of personality. I'm sure you had some very interesting and fun interactions with them. Was there any that stuck out in particular? Oh, man, there's so many. Um, first and foremost, their personalities are directly tied to their amazing musicianship. Mm -hmm. So being around someone like Fred Hemke or John Sampin inherently makes you a better musician. One of my favorite things about studying at Northwestern with Hemke at the time when I got to study with him is he was really big about having studio lunches or just after your lesson, going and grabbing lunch. And I'll never forget there was one lesson where I just he 
tore me apart. I mean, I just remember it felt like I was pulling a dart out of my heart. You know, I think <laughs> it, I was playing the first movement of uh, the Denisov and I'd been working on it for a week. So like he had just assigned this to me. I got it. You know, I was probably playing from photocopies because my part hadn't come in yet. And so I'd spend a week with it. And I thought I did a pretty good job for being able to make it to the end in a week. And we got to the we had piano center lessons. That was a part of the way he had his studio set up. So we played through this. And I didn't know the piano part at all. So I'm sure it was all over the place. I mean, you can imagine <laughs> if you know that piece, not rehearsing with piano and just being like, all right, let's let's go. Let's do this thing. I'm sure it was a dumpster fire. And at the end, I mean, he let me get all the way to the end and he just went, no, you don't know this piece at all. Do more work. And that was it. That was the main <laughs> feedback on how to make it better. It was just, you don't know this. And so I was, I mean, just remember being like crushed. And it, it inspired me to then figure out, okay, what does he mean by I don't know this? What do I need to know? And so I had to dig and investigate. But immediately after that lesson, I walked out. And it was his lunch break. And he was like, you want to go to lunch? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we went to lunch. And it was like, <laughs> I felt like he had just completely torn me down. And I was, you know, feeling really down on myself. And then we went and grabbed lunch together. And the, re the, the important lesson here is he treated me as a person first and foremost, and then me as a musician secondly, and the third or fourth down the list was the saxophone. That mm -hmm. was not his primary goal. And he even says that in a lot of you read his biography or you had a chance to chat with him about pedagogy. Uh, he's not trying to train saxophonists. He's trying to train good humans and good musicians. Uh, and the saxophone is just our tool through which he taught those lessons. So that's something I really carry with me. Um, and I also enjoyed the activities we did that weren't music related, like the saxophone softball games that we would do that became uh, tradition that every, I think it was every Memorial Day, he would have a cookout at his house and then we'd, uh, we'd do uh, a softball game. And I, I knew he had this Model T or Model A, he had a Model A Ford that he had restored and done a lot of work on. So at the at one of the, the parties, I remember we were sitting on the back uh, deck of his house and I just said to him, I was like, so, you know, you want to crank up that Model A? He's like, he sort of looked at me. He's like, you want me to crank up the Model A? I was like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> like, I didn't think he was going to do it. I was just kind of, you know, throwing it out there to see how he'd take it. He'd be like, ah, oh, no, I'll stop. Forget it. But he went in the garage, pulled the cover off, cranked the thing up, and we drove around like the neighborhood in his That's Model awesome. A Ford. <laughs> like, of course, once we did it, everyone had to do it. So then he had to take like three or four trips. Uh, those cars had no shocks. So it was. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you, you were just bouncing and rattling around. But what a, what a great memory to have, you know, just riding next to him driving his Model A with this massive steering wheel. And it was. <laughs> It was quite funny. Lots of good memories, but uh, many of them musical, many of them just, you know, human, humanitarian and getting to know the humanity in him was great. Yeah, that's what I love about hearing stories about Dr. Hemke. I feel like everyone that I've talked to about him has all these stories about how, like, he didn't just teach the saxophone. He was, like, uh, invested in you as a person. And, like, I don't know, that seems like such a cool influence to have in your life. So that's super awesome. I love that story. Yeah, I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm lucky to have gotten to study with him. I was one of the last ones. I know I was the last graduating class of the one-year master's program. Mm -hmm. Northwestern changed to a two-year. They had a two and a one-year. Um, I did the one-year program for cost reasons. That's an expensive school. Um, and the two-year became mandatory. And then the, so anyone who came in the year after me were there for two years, and those were his last two years. So I was essentially mm -hmm. his penultimate graduating class oh, wow. of the master's program. So it was. I was fortunate to have had that opportunity at timing-wise where I was in my career. And now for a word from our other sponsor, Consistency Wins. Consistency Wins was established in 2002 by Jonathan Cathell, who has over 30 years of experience working as an instrument technician. Aside from Jonathan Cathell, there are three other amazing technicians that work there. 
Jeremy Hill, Alex Singleton, and Courtney Christensen. All four technicians specialize in high-end setups and modifications. One thing that I really genuinely appreciate about Consistency Wins is that I know that they're not doing this just to gouge me for money. They're doing this because they genuinely love the instrument and they love making sure that we understand what they're doing. Consistency Wins doesn't use any gimmicky repair materials as a means to lure in musicians. Instead, they focus on how the instrument should properly function and provide helpful, myth-proof, tried, and tested information. This encourages less visits to the repair shop through the long-lasting services they provide. So if your instrument is out of repair and you're looking for someone who you can trust to do quality work, make sure you go to Consistency Wins. That's consistent, the letter C, wins. Speaking of careers, one fun thing that we get to do as musicians a lot is travel. And I really enjoy that aspect, but sometimes the travel can also be troublesome. <laughs> I'm just wondering, did you have any stories in particular that stuck out to you as either really fun or there was a lot of mishaps that made it a little bit more difficult? Yeah, definitely both. So I'll share a couple versions of those stories. Um, one that was particularly memorable, first time I traveled abroad, it was the World Saxophone Congress in Scotland in 2012. And I was traveling, my quartet was heading there to do a, a world premiere of a piece by um, Simon Fink titled Mic Check. And we had been rehearsing this piece, we were all ready to, to go and we we had booked our planes and I'd never traveled abroad. So uh, I decided like Lauren Mecha, who was our soprano player at the time, she and I were gonna travel together, which just makes it so much easier when you have someone to, you know, get on the plane with and, and you know, double check everything with just so you're not alone in a foreign country. Not that like the UK is that foreign, but still it's your first time out of the US on your own that can be daunting. Um, so we get to Edinburgh and it was through the night flight. I had every intention. Whenever I fly, I always fall asleep on airplanes. Like at the moment the, the tires leave the tarmac, I usually pass out and then I wake up upon landing. Well, for I don't know if it was excitement or nerves, but I was wide awake the entire flight across the Atlantic. So we, we get on the flight probably at like 9 or 10 p.m. and we land first thing in the morning because of the time change. So I'm going on like 24 hours of being awake at this point and we're landing. And now we got to get a rental car I'm the only one of the two of us that knew how to drive stick shift. So our rental car was a stick shift. So I'm driving a stick shift on the opposite side of the road around Edinburgh where roads do not like you look at a map or Google Maps and you look like roads cross, but they have different depths. Like one could be above the other one and it's like a bridge over the top of it. Mm. So you're thinking like, oh, I'm going to turn left here to get there. And you realize there's no turning left because you're on a bridge and the road you need is <laughs> below you. So we're navigating the, the old streets of Edinburgh trying to get around and figure out how we're getting anywhere. This is before before um, cell phones had international plans. So like we didn't have, we couldn't use our phones and you, we're used to using data and phones for everything. So we're navigating, traveling on the wrong side of the road, driving a stick shift. And I say wrong side, driving on the opposite side of the road is what I should say, because it's the correct side over there. But from, <laughs> from our perspective, everything you'd learned. Um, so I'm like fighting to stay awake, like have more caffeine in my bloodstream than I should probably ever have safely. And <laughs> just figuring out how are we supposed to get to St. Andrews from Edinburgh? It was quite an adventure, um, to put it lightly, but we made it. And then, of course, when you're going to do a jet lag thing, you have to keep yourself awake. So I end up, I think I made it to 6 p.m. before I fell asleep. That's pretty good after not sleeping for that long. <laughs> and as soon as I passed out, it was, I was out for, you know, all the way through the next morning. Um, but 
that was a little it was fun it was uh terrifying it was awesome but everything worked out well things don't always work out well when you're traveling um the assembly <laughs> quartet traveled to texas in 2015 for the nasa conference the one that was hosted at texas tech and uh, our berry player adam estes he is from texas so he organized a little mini tour for us that we we're going to be taking after the the um the conference so we fly in um and we were landing in san antonio because we were going to stay at his parents house before traveling to lubbock so we had this whole Texas th sort of tour set up. We had rehearsal spaces and from the get go, like literally, I shouldn't say everything, but just about everything that could go wrong went wrong. Oh no. Starting out, I'm on the plane and Jeff Heisler, our soprano player in assembly quartet, um, kind of has sniffles or whatever. He's not, he's like not feeling super good. And we're not thinking anything of it, especially pre pandemic, right? Nowadays, we'd all freak out. But dealing, you know, at that time, a little sniffle or whatever, allergies, cold, whatever, like, you don't think about it. So he wasn't feeling great, but he was fine, took some medicine and, you know, knocked himself out. And we, we, we flew together. Um, so we land and we're in San Antonio, Adam comes and picks us up. And we're thinking, you know, all is well, this will be good. But when we land, Adam tells us his pianist can't come because he had torn his retina, like somehow the actual, oh like, or cornea, it was it was like, internally within the eye something had torn so obviously you can't play piano when you can't see and, <laughs> and especially saxophone music you know maybe you're playing list you know that by memory but um he the, the pianist couldn't make it so there's one element of the performance that was going to be canceled i actually think hannah creviston stepped up and learned that music or had played it and might have actually been the savior oh wow <laughs> um or it could have been liz ames i forget who but one of the pianists that we know quite well um stepped in and played and filled in um to, i think to save that performance so that that's one of the few things that went right so issue number one pianist retinal tear issue number two ian's flight got grounded by being struck by lightning or something like <laughs> ended up getting having rerouted to dallas and having to sit there for a couple hours and we had to wait extra time for him to arrive so we ended up going to top golf in san antonio just to kill some time which that was my first time at a top golf and that was a lot of fun we thought everything was good right we get in the car after ian lands we think whoo we made it through the hard stuff let's go ahead and hit the road and we go to mason texas which is adam's hometown and we go stay at his parents' house. Um, we get there, we go to sleep, everything's good. Wake up the next morning and we're, we're you know, drinking coffee. And we're like, all right, let's warm up and have our rehearsal because we were going to do some rehearsing before um, we, we hit the road. Adam goes and goes to open up his berry sacks. And when he does, like, just keys pop out of the case. Like, uh. he, he had had to check it and it had apparently not survived that flight. So this particular... Oh, no baritone saxophone was in pieces um and we're my like, worst nightmare oh man and the thing we're, we're sitting here and thinking how do we salvage this because again as musicians like what what do we do so adam reached out to his local high school and the one he graduated from and still knows the director and asked can we borrow your baritone sax for the week i think they're on spring break or something not a problem he races over gets it no good not i mean just a piece of junk this oh no <laughs> it couldn't i mean it had leaks everywhere dents everywhere just was not going to function for a high-end saxophone conference what ended up happening is that adam was able to get the yamaha rep because he's a yamaha artist to allow him to borrow a saxophone at the conference still didn't solve our problem for the tour we had scheduled after the conference but at least <laughs> we had our our conference performance was scheduled to to be good to go so we finally make it to um, all the way to Lubbock. On the way, 
I don't remember if it was on the way or on the way back. But at some point, we drove through a tiny town that was a, just a speed trap. And I think we were doing maybe 40, and it dropped down to 25. Missed the sign. Cop right there. Pulled over. Um, so Adam gets a speeding ticket. And it's like, on top of all this, it's like, come on. Now we get a speed. Like, it wasn't even like we were trying. We were going in a place that went from like 45 to 25, right? And it, he just didn't see the, the, the change. It was very obviously a speed trap. On top of that, um, the window, we were in a borrowed vehicle and the window in like one of the back windows went down and then wouldn't come back up. <laughs> so we have a window and we're like hoping it doesn't rain. Um, it it ended up, we I think we had to like switch cars out with someone to get it to get fixed. We ended up borrowing a different person's vehicle. So we finally make it to Lubbock. The next morning, Jeff looks green. Like he like overnight things did not go well uh and we're go we're back in one of these little practice rooms trying to play and like jeff almost passes out like he's playing and like he just puts his head back on the wall and like jeff like he didn't wake up and we all decide like okay we cannot do this jeff is about to die they take him to an emergency room he had flu and strep and so we had to quarantine him in our hotel room so that i ended up just getting like a pullout cot because jeff and i were splitting a room and adam and ian were splitting a room so i ended up just crashing on this pullout cot in the other guy's room because we were going to let you know sick dude wallow in his sickness until he felt better (laughs) um so the entire conference jeff was in quarantine uh our we had to cancel our quartet performance it was just you imagine it absolutely nuts just so Seriously. many things that could possibly go wrong. Um, but I felt after that, like we've done our, we've paid our dues and now karma owes us a couple. So yes, seriously, we have, <laughs> we have some just perfectly sailing travels moving forward. Um, another funny thing, traveling through Paris, my flight made it in perfect. This was for 2015, the World Congress. I landed in Paris and got, well, Jeff and I traveled together again. And we get through the airport and we get to the train station and we we're going to meet up Aaron and his wife, Ian. Or I said it backwards, Ian and his wife, Aaron, we're going <laughs> to meet them up uh, to travel on the train together. And we're waiting and we're waiting. And it's like, well, we're going to miss our train that we'd pre-booked in advance if we don't get on this. And we're not hearing from them. And we get on there and we end up hearing later in the day that like there was a bomb scare on his plane. Like someone had called in a bomb threat. Oh, and so gosh. his plane was, he was taken off on the tarmac. They had to totally get off. And this was in Charles de Gaulle. They had to go through some special international holding area. Like he was there for like five hours while they were figuring out if anyone was actually a threat to, you know, national security in France. And obviously he'd missed that train and had to get another one. But uh, you just never know when you're traveling abroad what might happen and where you might end up. So. I feel like those are some pretty unique stories. Holy cow. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone having a bomb threat on their plane before. Luckily, it wasn't me. I don't know how I would have. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it it, sometimes things go perfectly and sometimes they don't. So it's an important thing to realize if a tour goes poorly, it doesn't mean you're a bad musician or that uh, your future is in jeopardy. You just kind of roll with it and, you know, the show (laughs) must go on and hopefully it does. But it can be interesting. I'm sure. Good Lord. I'm so glad I haven't had anything like that yet. Hopefully it won't happen, but who knows? <laughs> I hope so too, for your sake. Yeah. So one other thing, kind of transitioning out of the quartet and the student phase of your life, I know that you just recently got your job at Tennessee Tech, and I feel like a big part of being a saxophonist that's going into collegiate work is the fact that there is so little work at the moment. So I'm just wondering, what are things that you really focused on to make sure that you were kind of a step ahead in the game and making sure that you were a viable candidate for all the jobs that you were going for and maybe some advice when you actually get the job? 
Uh, absolutely. So I feel like I lucked into certain things. And by that, I mean, I made some some moves that people on the outside might think were smart moves that were really just kind of the trajectory of my life and being mm-hmm. in the right place at the right time. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But not every decision I made was super calculated. It was just the best opportunity at the time. And it worked out to be certain things. But if general advice is to diversify skill sets. Uh, if you want to be a candidate for an academic job, you need to fit as many different academic roles as possible. Another thing, if you've getting teaching experience is huge, especially at the high school level to demonstrate that you know how to interact with high school kids and how to recruit high school kids, because any university is going to hire you. There's going to be some expectation of recruitment for their program. So being able to interact with and be uh, a strong advocate for your program and for music with high schoolers is important. I was lucky during my undergrad to have had the chance to work with a few different band programs around Columbia, South Carolina. And from those, it gave me some, you know, teaching experience. Actually, there was one band program that when the band director went out of town, I would often come in and just be his sub. And that worked out really well. I, especially it's, it's silly to think about. I don't, didn't have a music ed background, but I'd been teaching, you know, woodwinds in general. So I ended up luckily being able to be a substitute teacher. And that's another line on the resume with band programs that just, helps. I remember I taught a sabbatical replacement and I was introduced. And when they were talking about my accolades and being introducing me, they they said uh, this was at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. Um, They said, you know, Dr. Young or I didn't have doctor at the time. uh, Professor Younglove has seven years of high school teaching experience. And I thought that can't be right. I went back (laughs) and looked at my resume and I was like, oh, well, I guess I started seven years ago teaching at that high school. I was like, oh, I I taught there every summer. I was part of their marching band staff. It's like, I do technically have high school teach like the way it was worded like I was like did I misrepresent myself and I never said that I had 7 years high school teaching experience cuz that sounds like you're saying band director right yeah. or school teacher I never said that I just had been working with band programs as a freelancer and therefore they interpreted it that way um and that in particular I was like oh wow that that makes me sound a lot more experienced than I feel, um, which, and again, you know, that's imposter syndrome and things like you, you're always going to feel like you don't have the experiences that others have had. Uh, at least that's my experience until you're in it and other people look up to you and say, you know, what are all these great things you've done? It's like, well, I didn't, I didn't think I'd done so many great things, but the advice I can say is diversify. I came into high school or I mean, I came into college with no jazz experience. We didn't really have a jazz band in my high school. If we did, it was maybe for, you know, one semester, my junior year. And we played, you know, some some of those jazz rock hybrids like 25 or six before. Not really real jazz. Right. So I didn't really know jazz. I hadn't done much swinging. I had, I had not been prioritizing that. And I was fortunate that Bert Ligon, jazz professor at University of South Carolina, took a chance on me and put me on Barry Sachs as a freshman in the big band. And I largely actually have to credit Bobby Young for that because I didn't make the jazz band. I think, you know, Bobby had ad- advocated they didn't have a Barry player. I think it was them. T- think about that. It's like when you go to take an audition for a military band or for an orchestra and they decide to hire no one. Right. Like yeah. I, had, I had auditioned for the jazz band. They're like they left the seat open. It's like, oh, ouch, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not even good enough to fill an empty chair. Um, but I couldn't play jazz. I was just a classical guy. However, 
Bobby had vouched and said, you know, Matt may not have it now, but you know, you should, you should take a chance on this guy. He'll learn, he'll bust his butt. And he was right. And I worked really hard. Um, I took jazz theory and jazz arranging. And uh, by the time I was a sophomore, I was playing lead alto after Bobby had gone on to university of Michigan and graduated. So it worked out very fortuitously for me that I had good mentors, good peers to look up to. And I took advantage of those opportunities. So even though I didn't even audition for the jazz band, I was given a chance, studied, worked my butt off so that I could be somewhat respectable in a jazz realm. I'm never going to record a jazz album, but <laughs> I can I can respectfully, um, I can play the genre in a way that gives it respect and, and presents it to people in, in an appropriate way. And that's an important part of my current job. Um, I did no, jo- no jazz at my previous job, and now I do quite a bit of it. Uh, and I was, I'm excited about that. It was something I was looking forward to when I moved to Tennessee Tech, was having the opportunity to dig into more jazz, but also have a backup plan, have have other outlets, have have something in mind that allows you to still be artistically fulfilled while paying the bills. Um, so thinking financially in a smart way, how, what are the things that I'm good at? What are the skills that I can continue to sharpen and work on? That might be doing, you know, in the summer, doing an internship with a local repair shop and getting into repair so that you still have the ability to make your own schedule, can still do some teaching of lessons, um, maybe do the freelance thing, but not be completely broke. Or, you know, there's so many different ways you can go that avenue, but coming up with a plan for the period of time where the academic position doesn't work out. If I think about when I first applied to a tenure track saxophone position, it would have been 2010. When I first got one, 2019. So that means I had to ride nine years of applying before I got a job. Now, I I was lucky and had an adjunct position that turned into a lecturership at Wayne State University. And that was largely due to skill set. I was already in, I had my foot in the door. I already had a job and they had a marching band opening. And I had said the year before, I'm never doing marching band again, <laughs> which just goes to tell you, uh, never say never. Um, but I had I'd been working um, with Dutch Fork High School and marching band every summer, and it was a, a decent gig, paid really well. I love the kids. And I finally, I was in Bowling Green and there was one summer I was like, you know, I'm just not driving back to do that. I'll find, I'll find a job at a golf course or do something uh, around Bowling Green. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ride out the Ohio thing. And I said, no more marching band and then that's when the opening at Wayne State came. And I was like, well, maybe I'm doing marching band. And I applied <laughs> for, uh, hesitantly, I applied for the director of athletic band pro- uh, position, which started out as another part-time position. So it was, I was adjunct professor of saxophone and part-time director of athletic bands. And then the year after that, they had a, they were able to justify a lecturer line, combine the two. I had to reapply, interview for the positions that I already had, which again is really terrifying when you're like, well, I have this thing, but I've, I've pushed for it to be full-time. So now I have to re-interview. So they went through a search again. I had to re-interview. Um, that became a lectureship. Not a lot of saxophone um, was a priority in that position. It, it was my priority, but it wasn't what, what the job was interested in. So I had to, I had a, that job for five years that allowed me to I had to make sure saxophone was still a priority. I had to set time out of my day. And, you know, playing in every lesson is huge for keeping your chops up when you're also writing marching band shows and trying to recruit students and visit high schools and do all these things that you have to do in an athletic position. So diversifying skill sets and, and not being afraid to go in an untraditional route. I don't think too many saxophone professors think like maybe part of my way to my journey will be directing a division to 
football marching band, you know, a marching band <laughs> for a D2 football program. Um, it was not certainly my plan. I was just fortunate to have had marching band experience at great programs in high school, teach at some great programs, um, have collegiate marching band experience and be able to put all that together into uh, using that as for a job for a period of time wasn't my long-term goal, uh, which is why I left that position and, and ultimately applied for the position that I'm now in at Tennessee Tech. This was my long-term goal, being you know tenure-track professor of saxophone and getting to spend every day focusing on saxophone things. That's That was really what I wanted. But again, it took nine years of job applications to get here, and it wasn't nine years of no bills. <laughs> so yeah. I still had bills to pay. I still had food to buy, you know, housing, to, all these things that you still have to cover. So you have to think creatively about how, how do I keep up my saxophone playing while getting through that phase of the career before I'm I've got enough skill sets and enough experience for a university to have an interest in me. So for sure, that was a very long winded answer. I hope it answered your question. Well, since we're running out of time, I just kind of wanted to spend a little bit of the last portion of this um, kind of highlighting anything that you're working on, any projects that you have that are coming up or anything that you've done recently that you'd like us to check out. Sure. So um, the couple things related to NASA, Stephen Page and I are both working on a NASA archive project. So we're we're officially archivists, whatever that means. We're working <laughs> to digitize all of the old programs and mm. all of the symposia so that we have an online database for any member of NASA. You could log in uh, and go on the website and just say, like, I'm doing research on um, X and, and then try and do a search for all the things that are applicable to X that are either performances of a of piece X from a program. Maybe you want to see when was this first performed or when, you know, and you may, we may not get the first performance, but we may get the first NASA performance. So we're trying to get all that data put on, on the website so that people can search both the scholarly research. So the Saxon Symposium articles, as well as the uh, biennial conferences and eventually regional conferences. So that's a lot of fun. It's a lot of scanning and there's a lot of doing computer research to figure out the best um, architecture to host all this. Uh, that So that's one project. Another one related to that, um, the most recent saxophone symposium article or, or, or publication has an article that I wrote, and this is on the music of Eric Wubbles, specifically his piece, This Is, This Is, This Is. So if that's something that interests you, I've got that article that just was published. Um, and I've got another article that I've submitted that I'm hoping will be published. It's a biographical article on John Sampin. Hmm. I had some fun getting to chat with him over the summer and uh, work with him and try to cap capture as much of uh, his personality and his story that 8,000 words would allow me to do. Uh, obviously, it's one of those things that you could write an entire book similarly to Fred Hemke, Eugene Rousseau, Don Sinta, you know, any of these massive people in our field, you could write a whole book on their life story. Um, so I didn't capture everything. I had to leave things out. So maybe it'll turn into a bigger project. Um, but for now, look for that. Hopefully it gets published. And I'm awaiting official funding, but there may be a re solo recording project in the works. So uh, a couple commissions that I've recently worked on, I'm hoping to have uh, a solo recording project that is maybe released within the next year and a half. So um, stay on the lookout for that. And if you're listening to this podcast a year and a half from now, so maybe in 2022, 2023, you can go online and, and listen to uh, streaming or purchase a copy of my CD that will hopefully be available. So um, that's all pending funding, but it, it's looking promising. Well, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And I really, really enjoyed some of the stories that you had to share. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. And I hope other people enjoy this as much as uh, the fun you and I are having right now. Join me next episode for my talk with Carrie Kaufman. Thanks for listening.